Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, what do we owe people seeking asylum? When I come to the border, I was handcuffed and I was thinking, did I do something wrong that I didn't know or what? Handcuffs and an orange jumpsuit were not the reception Razak Gayal was expecting when he arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border and asked for asylum. Because I was watching American movies back home. I see it's only prisoners wearing these orange uniforms and they got chained on their waist to their leg. And I'm here for protection. I'm here to America for to protect me because of what, what is happening to me. And here I am, they're taking me to prison. Razak Ayal is from Ghana. His father had two wives. Razak Ayal is the eldest, and he's the only child of the first wife. Relations with his half-siblings were always strained, but when Razak's father died in 2010... They threatened to kill me like several times. Then they even tell me, if you didn't stop talking about this land, we make sure that we end your life. His father owned a valuable piece of property, and it was Razak's job as the eldest son to sell it and split the profits. But his half-siblings conspired to squeeze him out and got a corrupt local politician on their side. The death threats against Razak escalated. Police refused to intervene. Then, toward the end of 2011, a gang of men with knives jumped Razak and put him in the hospital for a week. That's where my mom decided for me to leave out of the country because of my safety. And I told them, no, this is my property that my dad left, so I have to fight for it. And my mom said, no, because you are the only son that I have, so I don't want to lose you. She sold some of her jewelry and went to a travel agent to get Razak a visa to Germany but there were no visas available for anywhere in Europe. At the time, Brazil was offering one-year visas with limited hassle, so that's what they did. That's my first time of living out of Africa. He didn't speak Portuguese, and he couldn't find work in Brazil. So when his visa ran out, Razak joined a group of Africans headed to the United States. And I told them, I don't have a visa. And they say, it's fine. We go through the jungle, and when we crossed from Guatemala to Mexico. A couple of guys just came over into the bush. They were speaking Spanish. Some of them were holding guns. Some of them were holding cutlass, and we got robbed. My wallet, my birth certificate, my ID card, everything. Razak Ayal requested asylum when he crossed into Mexico, and he was placed in detention. After months in the jungle, he was relieved to be safe and relatively comfortable. Migrants wore their own clothes and could move freely around the place. But after three months, Mexican authorities told Razak they could not connect with the government in Ghana to process his asylum. We are trying to talk to your embassy in Washington, and nobody's responding to us. So that's why they said you have to leave. Razak had 20 days to leave Mexico. He took a bus to Tijuana. It was August 2013. The only place that I can go is to come to the United States because I cannot go back to where I'm coming from. So when we got to the border with the immigration officer, he asked passport and I said, I don't have passport. Any document, I said, I don't have any documents. All of a sudden, we saw a guy coming with the handcuff and he said, put your hand at your back. And... At that time, I was thinking like, what's going on? Did I do something wrong? I didn't know. One week we were there in the we were holding cell. We didn't take shower, we didn't bath, we didn't do anything. Then he was transferred to a private for-profit prison in Arizona 
to wait for a decision on his asylum. I stay in that detention for two years. And they say, no, we don't, we don't believe what you're saying. So that's the reason why we deny your asylum. People all around the world look to America as a land of opportunity and safety. Every month, tens of thousands of people arrive at U.S. border checkpoints and ask to be granted asylum. International law says the U.S. must consider their requests. But there is bipartisan agreement that the asylum system is broken. Over the last decade, the number of people showing up at the southern U.S. border has increased five-fold to more than 200,000 every month. Many, if not all, request asylum if given the opportunity. That huge increase has so overwhelmed the system that getting a final answer often takes years. While they wait, asylum seekers live in legal limbo, sometimes held in a detention facility like Razak Ayal was. And as happened with him, most requests for asylum, more than half, fail. This season, top of mind is finding fairness. We all want to live in peace and safety. America as a nation has more wealth, freedom, and security than most others. What do we owe people who are no longer safe or able to prosper in the countries where they happen to have been born? The United States has always been a magnet for immigrants. About a million people get visas to live, work, or study here every year. Asylum is a different pathway, specifically for people at risk of death or persecution in their home countries. There's often no time to waste, like in Razak Ayal's case. We left our various country because of the issue that we have. We went a safe place to live. The United States is a member of the United Nations, and there is a, a policy that was put forth in the 1960s that member uh, nations all agreed to. Someone, whether uh, because of political reasons or because of religious reasons, because of danger, threats upon their life, could apply for asylum in one of these um, nation states. This is Joe Mino, an author based in Chicago. Several years ago, he met Razak Ayal and another man from Ghana named Seydou Mohammed, and he decided to write a book about their quest for asylum. It's called Between Everything and Nothing. Pretty quickly, Joe Mino realized the asylum system was way more complicated than he'd imagined. I uh, felt completely overwhelmed and there was just so many questions I had as an American about this process that it was almost like starting uh, an education, like going as a graduate student in order to learn some of the complexities of, of the American asylum process. Now, as we dig in, there is a bit of history to know. After World War II, the U.S., France, Britain, and other nations realized they had sent a lot of Jews to their deaths by refusing to grant them refuge from the Nazis. Informing the United Nations, they also established the international right of refugees to request asylum if they have a, quote, well-founded fear of being persecuted because of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion in their country of origin. All 193 countries of the United Nations are expected to consider asylum requests in good faith. Now, there are two paths to seek safe haven under international asylum law. You can get refugee status through a UN office or embassy and be resettled to a new country, or you can set foot in a country and then request asylum. And that means showing up at a U.S. border, preferably with documentation, right? So a passport, some identification to verify your identity, and hopefully some sort of evidence to bolster your case when you actually make your plea. Here's why um, my life is at risk. Here's why I can't go back to this country. You present that to an immigration judge, and then they rule on it. But the difficulty is that that asylum process was never codified among these various nations. So our asylum process in the United States is radically different than, say, the United Kingdom or France or even our neighbor, Canada. And the way we handle asylum claims is to treat these individuals as threats and to house them in prison. And it's a really interesting choice, you know, in, in the case of England and in Canada, where as soon as you 
make this asylum um, plea. You're given housing, which is open enough for you to actually start like applying for jobs. You're also given a work permit. And the idea is that we see uh, these people as potential opportunities to improve the country or city where they happen to be living, to see them as potential revenue streams or potential economic interests. And they start moving through that process as they're waiting for the legal aspects of their asylum plea to be worked out. Joe Mino says September 11th, 2001 was a turning point for immigration and asylum policy in the U.S., When it became clear the 9-11 attackers had visas to be in the United States legally as they carried out their plans, Congress created the Department of Homeland Security and placed immigration under its jurisdiction. Suddenly, immigrants and asylum seekers were seen as national security threats. If you don't show up with a passport or papers and you try to apply for asylum, you are seen as committing a crime. And so when Razak stepped into the port of entry to declare his intention to apply for asylum, he was immediately put in handcuffs and in chains on his feet, and then later searched, interviewed, and given a jumpsuit to wear in the way that you would treat a threat, a criminal. And I think he was so shocked based on his understanding of the United States and what he imagined the process to be. So because Razak is being housed in this for-profit prison, he does not have access to the internet to try and build a case. All he had was his own experience to talk from when he made his final plea for asylum. Razak, um, what went through your mind the day you learned that your asylum claim had been rejected? The reason... The judge refused my asylum claim is I don't have evidence to prove my case. And I asked the judge, please, why did you guys keep me here expecting me to bring evidence once I don't have any movement to go out, to go and find my evidence? This is not right because it's like a you folded my arm and you put me in the, in the river to ask me to swim. How can I swim? They set you up for failure, you feel like. Yeah, and they, they, they say you have any right to appeal. And I ask them, like, if I'm going to appeal, am I going to stay here? Am I going outside to appeal my case? And they told me, you're going to stay here to appeal your case. And You would have to stay in the detention center during that. Yeah, and I told them, like, I'm not going to appeal because even if I'm appeal again, it's the same situation because where should, where can I have the evidence? I don't have access to talk to my family. I don't have any news about my people, my mother. And that made me feel like, uh, what am I doing here? Just deport me already, he said. But then... Just like happened in Mexico, the Ghanaian embassy did not respond to requests to verify Razak's citizenship so the U.S. could process his deportation. Meanwhile, Razak waited in prison for six more months, even though U.S. law says the government can only hold someone for three months while they're deporting them. A nonprofit legal group heard about Razak and got a court to release him pending his deportation. He went to live with an uncle in New York who had been to Ghana recently and warned Razak it was still dangerous for him there. He was telling me like, uh, Razak, these guys are still looking for you. They are still talking about you. Razak was stuck. Any moment, U.S. immigration agents could show up at his uncle's home and deport him back to Ghana where he was sure he'd be killed. Then, just before Christmas in 2016, a friend told Razak he'd heard about people going to Canada to avoid deportation. They were telling me, okay, can you go to Canada and try your asylum over there? And I told them, I don't know anybody. I don't know my way to Canada. So he told me, go to take a bus, go to Minneapolis. From Minneapolis, you get your way to Canada border. So that's how I decided to go and get my ticket to Graham, to Minnesota. I was there waiting to see what I can do. That's where I met my friend Seydou. 
and we make the journey together. Seydou Mohamed is the other refugee featured in Joe Mino's book. Seydou had also been rejected for asylum in the U.S. and did not know Razak until they met by chance at the bus station in Minneapolis. They shared a taxi to within a few miles of the Canadian border, and they started walking in a snowstorm. It was bitterly cold. They walked for hours. Both men would later lose all of their fingers to frostbite. Their lives were saved when a truck driver picked them up and took them to a hospital in Canada. My experience here in seeking asylum in Canada is totally different than the one in the United States. Did they lock you up? Never. They never lock me up. They help you out and they make sure that they tell you, like, oh, feel like home. Don't feel like you are different. They have a lot of uh, different legal aid to fill your asylum papers because we don't know the system. And in the United States, because I was locked up, I tried to call a lawyer. And the lawyer told me before he drive his car, to come and visit me in the detention center, I have to pay 1500 He wouldn't come to meet with you unless you paid him $1,500, which of course you didn't have. Yeah, I don't have it. And I couldn't see anything like this here in Canada. So that's really the biggest difference between how the U.S. handles asylum and how these other, you know, first world countries, Canada, France, and England, you know, as soon as you make an asylum plea in Canada or in England, you're assigned someone whose job it is to help you through that process. The government pays for it. It, it sounds like it's almost like a, like a public defender kind of situation. Right. So when you apply for asylum in the U.S., you do not have that right. Because these asylum seekers are not U.S. citizens, they are not guaranteed that right to legal counsel. And so very, very few retain a lawyer. And because of that, their chances of actually getting their asylum plea approved is is incredibly low. Having a lawyer makes a real difference. Yeah, you can see this correlation between if you're able to afford legal counsel, your chances of getting a positive approval, you know, go up as like 85, 90%. But the percentage of people who actually can do that is under 10%. And, you know, I think there's a whole host of ethical, moral questions that the idea that you're not providing legal counsel to people going through really a life or death decision. I think uh, those questions really need to be resolved. Razak, do you regret having applied for asylum in America? Yeah, I regretted it until now. I'm still regretting it because everything that happened to me and Seydou, it's because of we didn't got any justice, we didn't got any help from the United States. That's the reason why we end up leaving United States, end up in this cold and frozen our fingers and losing our fingers because of the justice that I didn't got in the United States. Within six months of arriving, frostbitten and near death, both Razak Ayal and Seydou Muhammad were granted asylum in Canada. Joe Mino tells their story in the book Between Everything and Nothing, which came out in 2020. What does justice for asylum seekers look like? The experience can differ dramatically depending on why you're seeking asylum, where you come from, who you're with, and what you have on you when you get to the U.S. border, which border station you arrive at, what's happening in the U.S. economy on that day, and who's in the White House. We can't cover all the possible permutations that might lead an asylum seeker like Razak Ayal to declare, I didn't get justice from the United States. But we can identify common themes that may help us to decide as citizens and voters how we'd like America to handle asylum. So let's hear from someone who got it. I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. My uh, legal name is uh, Kiangana Dialungana. But I like to go by Makaya River because that's my American adopted name. I was born and raised in the Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly known as Zaire. And I was brought to the United States 
at the age of 16, uh, back in 2002. 2022, I was able to obtain my uh, asylum status. The process took 20 years. Makaya Ravel did not initially set out to seek asylum in the United States. It happened by accident. His parents worked for the government of President Mobutu, who was overthrown by a rebel group in the late 1990s. The new regime targeted people who had worked for Mobutu. The police were patrolling everywhere, and uh, those who were speaking against the government were either being disappeared or killed. Makaya's family managed to avoid harm until one night in 2002. Makaya had just turned 16 and was learning to drive with an instructor in the car when he rear-ended a police vehicle. Panicked, he ran. I was running, looking for a place to hide. And uh, since we live in a port city, I went straight to the boat. So I got in there just to hide. It was a cargo ship. He meant to stay just until the coast was clear, but he fell asleep. And uh, I found myself in the Atlantic Ocean. And the crew of the ship found me. And they brought me to the captain. And I don't remember uh, anyone telling me where the boat was going. The ship stopped briefly in Argentina and Brazil, but Makaya didn't consider staying in either place. This whole thing had been an accident. You know, leaving my country, leaving my family behind was not even in my mind. After a month at sea, the ship landed in New Orleans, and Makaya was handed over to immigration officials. He was handcuffed, jailed for a night, and then flown to a detention center for unaccompanied minors in Reading, Pennsylvania. I had no idea what was happening to me. I was worried that mom don't know where I am and I haven't been talking to her. So when did you, when were you finally able to talk to your mom for the first time after you left? When I was at the Reading uh, detention center and she told me what was happening there in the Congo. She says that... Um, they're living in a hiding because the police, just as I imagine, the police went to uh, destroy the house and kill my youngest brothers and they killed my dad. The police tracked down your family and killed your father and brother. Yes. And my brother was eight years old. Uh, he was for the youngest one in the family. Uh, we were five, five boys. I'm so sorry. Uh, I was devastated. At that time, my uh, mom and my remaining three brothers were living in hiding at the time. But they were living in a friend's house. Did she encourage you to come back to Congo? She did not. Uh, she didn't tell me anything about going back to Congo. Uh, she said that the Congo um, was a bad place for them at that time. Realizing he couldn't go home, Makaya became an asylum seeker. Most of what happened at this point is a blur to him. He was just 16 and terrified. Somehow he connected with a pro bono lawyer who helped him apply for asylum. There was a video hearing with an immigration judge. Makaya didn't really follow what was happening. The hearing was uh, super fast. And uh, my understanding of my first asylum case was it was uh, poorly presented. And the judge was denying a asylum case in a rate of over 90%. And the timing was not good for the country. I was brought here uh, in 2002. And a year before that, September 11 happened, and the status of immigrants in this country was not a positive one. The judge denied Micaiah's asylum. Years later, Micaiah learned that his attorney failed to follow through with his appeal. So at that point, the process dictated that Micaiah be deported back to Congo. But deporting kids on their own is tricky. The U.S. government still doesn't have a smooth system for doing it safely. So Makaya spent about a year in detention, 
and then a year with a foster family before landing in a group home for migrants when he turned 18. There, he developed a bond with a psychologist named Elizabeth Revelle. The reason Dr. Revelle and I met was because of my uh, biological mom died in the Congo. And I went through a serious depression and I became a suicidal at the time. I understand that the Ravels, Elizabeth and Alvin, ultimately adopted you as their son. Yes. The adoption really, really changed my life. Without the adoption, I don't think I'll be able to finish high school, let alone go to college. Since Micaiah was undocumented, he did not qualify for federal student aid. So his adoptive parents spent their savings and took out loans to pay his tuition. And they did what they could to resolve Micaiah's immigration status. They hired dozens of lawyers to help me with my case. None of them were successful. And I was living in a limbo, like a millions of people living today. Micaiah got a graduate degree in international peace and conflict resolution from American University. He started a nonprofit to help orphans in Congo. Always he was at risk of deportation, but the government was mainly focused on deporting people with criminal records at the time. Finally, the Ravels stumbled on a lawyer with the will to get Micaiah's asylum case back on track. And it was someone Micaiah had met years earlier. So when I walked in the office, the person who greeted me said to me, hey, I know you. And it turns out it was uh, Bridget Cambria. She'd been a guard at the detention center where Micaiah was held. And she'd become troubled by the way asylum seekers were being treated. And she quit the job and went to law school and created a legal organization to defend the people like me. She's a, a few people in this world knew what the children like me went through in this uh, detention center because uh, she was there. And she personalized my case. And for she prioritized my case. With her help, Micaiah Ravel was granted asylum in 2022, 20 years after he first arrived in the United States. Much of what he experienced during that time is common for asylum seekers in this country. A period of detention, a confusing legal process, a long wait in legal limbo, and an initial no on the request for safe haven. To get a yes so long after being rejected for asylum, though, is highly unusual. And due largely to Micaiah getting adopted by an American couple with the resources to navigate the immigration system— he is fully aware of that and grateful for it. But as with so many refugees and asylum seekers, the gratitude is mixed with regret. For many asylum seekers, um, we are being a demonized in, in a way that people don't truly understand what we're going through. The internal suffering, there has been a lot again as well, I got adopted, I have a family, but asylum means that I lost my home. I lost my community. I don't even know when I'm going to see my brothers again. They're still in the Congo. You have, you, you have never been back to see them? No. And I'll never see my mom or my dad. The loss is greater than again. Yes, I'm educated. I'm helping a lot of orphans in the Congo, but Congo became a killing field after I left. Do you think you would still be alive today if you hadn't accidentally gotten on a boat that was headed for the Atlantic Ocean? Um, I would say no. I would say no. So it was an accident. You hadn't planned to seek asylum, but do you think you were led or that you were just lucky? Uh, I don't know whether I call it lucky. Hmm. Um, I had a beautiful life in America, obviously. Without Dr. Rivers, I would never be where I am today. Yeah. 
Micaiah, do you think that the United States has a moral obligation, more so even than other countries, to grant protection to people? United States doesn't owe the world anything. U.S. is a sovereign, you know, states. The borders must be protected. But we don't have to act like a Iran. We don't have to act like a, like a Congo. To be the leader of a, the free world, you have to lead by example. So we have to pass a law to fast the hearing. People are waiting every years and years for their immigration cases to be heard. Instead of a detention, we can have a family group. You know, but a family housing, a family community where people still maintain the dignity. Oftentimes we hear the slogan of we are the nations of immigrants, but we are not truly welcoming immigrants, especially the refugees, the people who are fleeing suffering around the globe. Makaya Ravel is founder of the Marie Mambu Makaya Foundation, helping orphans in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's named after his mother. And he's CEO of Peace Promise Consulting, which does mediation and conflict resolution work in schools and businesses. The average wait to get a decision in an asylum case in America is more than four years. Across the ideological spectrum, experts agree that's a problem. I mean, the system is absurdly backlogged you start to get to a point where it breaks the immigration court's ability to adjudicate. How we fix the backlog, though, depends a lot on how we answer the question at the heart of today's episode. What obligation do we have toward asylum seekers? Let's hear now from two former immigration judges who spent years deciding asylum cases and arrived at different answers to the question. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. If you really want to solve this problem, you're going to have to let more people in legally one way or the other. The standard for asylum is supposed to be generously applied. That's Paul Wickham Schmidt. He was an immigration judge in Virginia from 2003 to 2016 and now teaches at Georgetown Law. And this is Andrew Arthur. We need to encourage people to consider the other options that they have. If you go through nine countries, all of which grant asylum on your way to the United States, those are nine opportunities that you had to apply for protection. Andrew Arthur was an immigration judge in Pennsylvania from 2006 to 2014. He's currently a resident fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, which is a think tank promoting restrictive immigration policies that were championed by President Trump and his advisors. So let's imagine America has one giant door specifically for asylum seekers. Over the last 40 years, that door has swung back and forth, but it's never been more than halfway open. At the start of the 2010s, immigration courts were saying yes in 50% of asylum cases. Then the door began to slowly close until by the end of President Trump's term, the grant rate for asylum seekers was in the 20s. Since then, it's been opening again, slowly. Former immigration judge Andrew Arthur is in the camp pulling on the handle to tighten the gap, while Paul Schmidt is with those pushing out to let more asylum seekers through. Politics and public opinion at any given moment determine who's winning the tug of war, the pushers or the pullers. Even as an immigration judge, Paul Schmidt was firmly on the side of opening the door wider. He said yes to asylum seekers a lot more than other immigration judges at the time. I mean, I was fair. I suppose some people would say generous. I'd say uh, that's really the way the system was supposed to work. Did you see your job as a judge to primarily be looking for reasons to say no or looking for reasons to say yes? I'd probably the latter. Hmm. I mean, if, they, if there were people out there who could be fit within the system, we often could fit them in. On the other hand, Andrew Arthur said no in 90% of cases he heard as an immigration judge. 
He says that was mainly because his judicial district included a detention facility for asylum seekers who had committed crimes, which typically meant an automatic rejection. But Arthur says saying no was never easy. You are listening to the stories of people telling you about the traumas that they've gone through. And, you know, that can be a gut-wrenching experience in certain instances. And at the same time, many of those stories just weren't true. They had been manufactured in order to obtain asylum. And I had to make a determination of which ones were true and which ones weren't. And it's very difficult for someone to tell you an anguishing tale and then at the end tell them you just don't believe them. Based upon inconsistencies, it's very difficult. And you always want to make the right decision because you're truly talking about the path of a person's life. Andrew Arthur's core concern with the current asylum system is that too many people who don't qualify for it are asking for it anyway. He says they've clogged the immigration courts to the point that the four-year wait for a decision is attracting even more asylum seekers. That creates an incentive for people to file, uh, you know, non-meritorious, fraudulent, or bogus applications simply to be allowed to stay and work in the United States. If you file an asylum application... You can request work authorization that you can get 180 days after you filed your application. And, you know, when you're talking about, you know, those numbers, they get so large, particularly given the fact that about 2.2 million migrants were apprehended entering the United States illegally in FY 2022. And about, mm, you know, somewhere around a million of those individuals were given the opportunity to apply for asylum, which is just going to add to that backlog. Both Andrew Arthur and Paul Schmidt and everyone working on this in policy or advocacy agree we need to clear out the backlog of cases in the asylum courts and figure out how to keep them from continuing to pile up. The Trump and Biden administrations made it a priority without much success. Andrew Arthur thinks it'll take hiring a lot more judges. Paul Schmidt doubts that will do the trick. The more judges you add, if they're not the right judges and they're not well-trained, what you're actually doing is, is creating more inconsistencies and more chaos. It's, a, I think, a question of political influence on the system. Uh, too many judges and appellate judges who are not really asylum experts. It seems to be a sort of deny for any reason uh, the asylum system is really being used as a deterrent rather than uh, the way it's supposed to be used as a fair expert determination of whether people qualify. So Schmidt thinks the best way to clear the backlog is to establish clearer legal precedents to guide immigration judges and offload as many cases as possible to asylum officers with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or USCIS. Always, of course, with an eye towards saying yes as much as possible. Pretty much the people that have been here longer than three or four years, if they haven't committed crime, they're not going anywhere. You're not going to get through those cases. So at some point, you have to decide uh, which cases are important. And if, if what's really important is arriving asylum cases, then I think you have to come up with ways to clean the other cases out of the system, whether that's through prosecutorial discretion whether it's through, you know, some of them have applications that probably could be decided by USCIS. That's a heck of a lot cheaper to hire asylum officers and adjudicators than it is to hire immigration judges who are some of the senior level employees in the government, and then only send the cases where there are real important issues uh, over to the immigration courts. So that's what the fix might look like if you're inclined to push the asylum door out and let more people in. If you'd like to see fewer people coming through to request asylum, Andrew Arthur says, we need to start detaining everyone who arrives. Humanely, we would, you know, provide for them food education, housing, medical care. But in a detention facility. Yeah. Um, And then immigration judges would quickly hear their claims. Within a matter of months, ideally? Within 40 days, ideally. And at that point, those who had meritorious claims would be granted. And those people who didn't have claims would either have the opportunity to appeal or would be removed. You know, that is the best way to ensure that those individuals who truly do have meritorious claims 
you know, can get them adjudicated, get the legal process out of the way and start their new lives and to begin that process of bringing their loved ones to the United States. Uh, we're not doing anybody any favors uh, under the system that we have now. Uh, individuals are subject to egregious harm, you know, uh, when they migrate illegally to the United States. Doctors Without Borders back in 2017 said that more than 60% of those individuals are subject to violence during their trip to the United States. And, uh, you know, just less than a third of all women are sexually assaulted. So, you know, we want to uh, deter individuals from making that illegal transit to the United States. Now, these two contrasting visions, the system should be generous and the system should deter bogus applicants, they're both rooted in U.S. law. It's just that Paul Schmidt emphasizes laws and court rulings that came about in the 1980s when Congress first formalized the modern asylum process. The Refugee Act of 1980 was a response to the wave of Vietnam War refugees who had just arrived without a clear application and appeals process. Paul Schmidt was involved in shaping those laws as an immigration attorney at the Department of Justice. Andrew Arthur, on the other hand, grounds his philosophy in additions to the asylum process made a decade later, when he was working on immigration issues as a congressional staffer. The 1996 Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act was a response to growing concerns about illegal immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border and emphasized detention for asylum seekers. Andrew Arthur wants that enforced. Back in 1996, Congress was concerned about exactly what I was describing, that individuals were gaming the asylum system in order to be able to live and work in the United States. They said, if you have a credible fear of uh, return or found to have one, you're supposed to be detained until you are either granted asylum or you're removed. And for more than a dozen years, that was the standard. In December of 2009, however, then ICE Director John Morton issued what was called the Morton Directive. And the Morton Directive said, if an individual has received a positive credible fear determination, that I should consider that uh, individual for what's called parole, which is basically release into the United States. Prior to the issuance of the Morton Directive, anywhere between about four to 5% of individuals who are apprehended entering the United States illegally claimed a credible fear. Within a few years, that jumped up to 44% because smugglers recognized that this was a way to ensure that individuals that they had smuggled to the United States were able to uh, get released and be here indefinitely. The Trump administration actually attempted to comply with that detention standard. It never revoked the Morton Directive, uh, but you know it attempted to comply with it. The Obama administration actually detained more than 50% of the individuals who were subject to mandatory detention. That dropped during the Trump administration as more and more people started coming, which is part of the reason why the Trump administration implemented what was called the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. Under MPP, individuals who were apprehended entering illegally, who had made asylum claims, uh, who were not from Mexico would be sent back across the border to Mexico to await their asylum hearings. So that's the genesis of Remain in Mexico. The Migrant Protection Protocols, also known as Remain in Mexico, resulted in tens of thousands of asylum seekers living in makeshift refugee camps in Mexican border towns like Tijuana. Human rights groups and local Mexican officials objected to the squalid conditions and the chaos. Paul Schmidt would prefer to see most asylum seekers released into the United States to live and work temporarily while they wait for a court decision, which was the standard before Donald Trump took office. Schmidt says concerns that asylum seekers will just disappear into society and stay indefinitely are overblown. But he adds the best way to make sure they do show up for asylum hearings is to help them get lawyers. The one thing we know is that asylum seekers who are represented show up for their hearings, you know, studies differ. I mean, some say 90 percent, 89, some say 95, but there really doesn't appear to be much doubt that if people are represented and understand the system, they do show up for hearings. So 
If I were a rational government official, I would concentrate on trying to ensure that those who pass credible fear and can't immediately be granted at the asylum office go to places where they get represented, uh, that they understand the system. And I'd work with the private groups that do provide pro bono representation, maybe giving them some grant money, some support to try and maximize representation. Schmidt also thinks the U.S. should take more advantage of the refugee process, where people apply for protection in America while they're still in another country. Each year, the president decides how many refugees can be resettled to the United States and which countries of origin should get priority. I think refugee programs are easier to manage and you're doing the processing uh, abroad. And if you pre-screen them, either uh, it could be done in their home countries or in countries nearby, and then admit them uh, as refugees and they'd be on their way to uh, on a path to a green card without having to go through the asylum system. So all administrations have basically underutilized uh, the refugee programs, particularly uh, when it comes to the Caribbean and Western Hemisphere. I mean, Trump administration basically eradicated the refugee program. But even when it was in use by the Obama administration, a lot of the people they selected were from the Middle East, from uh, Southeast Asia, countries around China, uh, but they almost never used it uh, appropriately for the Western Hemisphere. So, of course, you're going to have a disproportionate, you know, if people can't apply abroad, then it's more likely they'll show up at the border. Even in those cases where someone feels compelled to try and get to the United States on foot and request asylum, Andrew Arthur, who favors more restrictive immigration laws, says migrants should be required to apply for asylum in other countries they pass through. Every country in the Western Hemisphere other than Cuba has either signed the 1951 Convention on Refugees or acceded to it. Uh, Mexico, you know, is the 11th largest economy in the world, and they actually grant asylum on much more generous terms than the United States does. So the idea that the United States is the only country that people can come to if they're fleeing persecution is belied by that fact. So do you think that the United States has no more obligation, morally, ethically, to offer asylum to individuals we're no more obligated than Mexico is or any other country. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because, you know, we are a beacon of hope and freedom of the world. And in fact, we allow more individuals without asylum claims to migrate to the United States uh, permanently uh, than every other country in the world. But when you talk about the moral obligation, we have a moral obligation to ensure that people don't suffer on their trip to the United States. In addition to the suffering that we're obligated to prevent in sending someone back to torture or persecutions, we prevent that by taking away the incentives that individuals have to enter the United States illegally in order to file asylum claims that are not meritorious, that are bogus. And the best way to ensure that we you know, take away those incentives is to humanely detain individuals during that uh, period of time that we're adjudicating their application. That was Andrew Arthur, former immigration judge and now resident fellow for law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Former immigration judge Paul Wickham Schmidt is currently adjunct faculty at Georgetown Law. And the way he sees it, being more generous with asylum is really our only option to deal with increasing numbers of people arriving at the border. I don't think that uh, uh, any of the deterrents are really going to stop them from coming one way or the other. If you feel you have no choice, uh, you know, what is detention? What's scaling a wall? I mean, I think it's an underestimation and a lack of appreciation by political folks of what it really means to be a refugee. Refugees are desperate people. And uh Desperate people are going to do whatever they have to do uh, to save their lives. So, what do we owe people seeking asylum in America? Well, legally, we're required to let them show up and ask for it. 
which, by the way, we pretty much stopped doing entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, morally and ethically, our obligation toward asylum seekers is up to us as a country. And for decades, we've been unable to decide whether we want to be mostly pushing the door open or pulling it closed. Public opinion provides the pressure that moves the door. Our personal decisions on this matter. So let me just close with something that's kind of been nagging at me. I can't get past the fundamental unfairness of this one fact. I did nothing, absolutely nothing, to be born in America. It's pure luck that I'm here instead of on the other side of the door, fleeing violence or poverty and pleading to be let in. I have always been obsessed with fairness. As a kid, I was constantly complaining about this or that thing, not being fair, drove my parents crazy. Yeah, Jules, they'd say, life's not fair, which drove me crazy because what kind of excuse is that? Life should be fair. Why should we settle for anything else? Well, with age and experience, I have realized that the fairness that matters most to me is not where everyone gets an equal share of dessert or the same exact amount of money to spend on school clothes. It's that everyone gets what they need for the best possible chance to thrive. And the fact is, I am better able to thrive through sheer luck. So if the question is, how wide should we crack that door to people who weren't born so lucky? There's only one answer I can see. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me, Kimberly Beck, and Madeline McKenzie, with help from James Hoops and Samuel Benson. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I am so glad you're joining us for season three of Top of Mind focused on finding fairness. In addition to full episodes tackling tough topics, we're excited to be sharing lots of stick with it conversations on the podcast feed this season too. And we'd love to hear your story. Tell us about a time when you felt challenged and you had the urge to get defensive, but you chose to stick with that discomfort instead. Our email is topofmind at byu.edu. And if you'd take a moment to rate and review Top of Mind on your favorite podcast app, that would be great. It'll help people find us and join in this effort we're on to become better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.